Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. I'm excited to be here, guys. This is going to be the best series uh, on planet Earth this church has ever happened. And that, that will be true uh, right up until the very next series, I can assure you of that. <laughs> but this is the best series we've ever done at this church in eight plus years. Uh, welcome to week two of Revelation. A few people are excited, that's good, don't worry. You've only got, I guess, after this, 20 more weeks to get excited about it, so you might as well, you might as well just get excited now, seriously. Um, I think Chris did a phenomenal job last week, can we honor him? for that. Yeah. He did the perfect intro message to Revelation, making sure that the whole series is launched with us looking up at the throne, the Father seated on the throne. And just as John heard the voice of the Father, turned towards it, saw what the Lord was revealing to him, and fell on his face in worship, That's what the rhythm of our lives should be too, right? Not just one time, but every single day, multiple times a day. That's what we should be doing. And if we were, just as we are insane enough to do 22 weeks of Revelation, if we were insane enough to only do one week of Revelation, that is the only message you would ever need to hear. Because whatever happens in the book with like the dragon, Chris said this, like the dragon and the false prophet and the woman and the, the, the fire from heaven and the battle and oh, like... Whatever that is, the Father is seated on the throne. And that's it. And we're victorious because he is victorious. That's all you need to know. But we're doing 22 weeks, and it's going to be fun. This is actually going to be another intro week. Oh, man. Uh, But we're doing it on purpose because when we decided that we were going to do 22 weeks on Revelation, we wanted to take extreme care to make sure that this foundation was laid. I'm going to lay another foundation on top of Chris's, okay, so that we as a family can have our expectations properly aligned so that the purpose of God can be clearly understood and accomplished. And I don't normally do this, but right from the top, I'm just going to give you my outline briefly for today. Number one, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what Revelation is and what it isn't. It's going to be really fun. Number two, I'm going to talk about how the, John uses the Old Testament excessively when he writes Revelation. I'm also going to talk about literary genres because it's really important to know if you're reading which genre you're reading. That helps us know how to interpret it and apply it properly. Number three, I'm going to go to Revelation 12, which is actually the first book of Revelation if you look at it from a chronological perspective. Revelation 12 is mostly describing past events. Okay, and then finally, I'm going to go back to Revelation 1 briefly to set up the letters because the next seven weeks are going to be one letter to the church each week. Okay? It's going to be amazing. So here we go. Are we ready? Yes. All right. What Revelation is and what it isn't? Let's talk about eschatological systems. We're going in deep right off the bat. Yep. Okay, so eschatology is just a fancy word that means what do you believe about the end times? Um, and let me just, a quick show of hands, uh, how many of you have heard these terms? Rapture, okay, tribulation, 
What about like pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial, dispensational, covenantal, Maccabean, preterist, futurist? I'm telling you we're going in deep. Okay, number one, other than the word tribulation, none of those words are in the Bible. Okay? So be careful how attached you get to them. Number two, those systems, those are terms referring to systems. None of those systems are in the Bible. Every single one is a man-made system, a man-made interpretation that grossly oversimplifies, and I do mean grossly oversimplifies, complex textual relationships. They claim to fully explain the mysteries of God, despite the fact that Jesus himself, who is God, by the way, in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour except for the Father. And at Church 214, you need to know this. I speak on behalf of the leadership team and the teaching team with this one. We take that verse 1 billion percent literally. No one knows the day or the or the hour, except the Father. That means no one, except the Father. Yet, we have scholars and pastors writing books, making movies, hosting conferences, and forming entire denominations around these systems, and they sell them to you so confidently, as if it's so obvious in the text, you must be stupid to not see this system that I created in the text. That's how confidently they sell them to you. And the problem with that is none of them is in the text. The problem we have in the American church today is that we have an entire generation, in fact, almost two generations, that were raised on the Left Behind series instead of the actual book of Revelation. And it's not Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's fault. Okay? They took an amazing book from the Bible and said, you know what? Let's write some novels. And it was never at any point in their minds where they're like, you know what? We should totally screw up the theology of the American church. That's what we should do. No, they, they wrote some good novels and they made a ton of money and God bless them for it. I, given it a chance to do it over again, they should do it again. It's the church's fault. The church shied away from this book for, what did we say, 100 years basically? So long that when the Left Behind series came along, everybody read those, and then they're like, oh, maybe I better go read that Revelation stuff. And then everybody read the book of Revelation with a Left Behind lens instead of reading the Left Behind series with a Revelation lens, which is backwards. That is the church's fault. The church dropped the ball. For a century, we dropped the ball, and we're going to stop with that now. So let's just let's throw the chart up there. Yeah. I'm going to get out of the way and use my wall like I like to do. You know how I do it. So uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel 9. So all of this pre-trib, mid-trib, millennial rapture stuff, all of those systems get their birthplace in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It's a very infamous passage. There's vague references to seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 if you add them together. And then there's a 70th one. And sometimes the weeks refer to weeks, but sometimes they refer to a period of seven years. And, and then all these really smart people were like, well, this is what it means. And so up, up at the top, you have a few Bible references, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, okay? And then you have some very obvious, very well-documented uh, historical 
landmarks like the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, uh, the destruction of the temple, the life of Jesus. We know very reliably what those dates are. The destruction of the temple later on in 70 AD. And then at the end, you kind of have down here, you've, okay, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, the tribulation, the rapture's here, but some, maybe it's over there, and then the, the, the kingdom's there, but some, and then, and, and maybe there, so this, this system has a gap here and a gap there, but then this one has no gap, but then there's a really big gap over there, and uh, the reason why there's four timelines on the chart is because there isn't a clear winner, which should tell you something about how important they are. Okay. Now, I'm not here to make anyone feel bad. Uh, if you feel bad, that's the Holy Spirit's working on your heart a little bit. Seriously. Let's just, take, let's just talk about the tribulation for one second. Keep the chart up there. <clears throat> um. Let me ask you a question. Is there a verse? So the tribulation is this like a specific seven-year period of suffering in the future, correct? Yes? Anyone? Not so confident anymore? <laughs> Let me ask you a second question then. Is there a verse in the Bible that says that the tribute? Now, the word tribulation is used all over the place, okay? But the tribulation, the great tribulation... Is there a verse in the Bible that says the tribulation is a specific seven-year period of great suffering sometime in the future? The answer is no. Anyone who has that view is assuming that the 70th week of Daniel 9 is the tribulation. But Daniel 9 does not say that. And neither does Revelation or any other verse in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to believe that. But don't say that's what the Bible says. Say, I believe. My interpretation is, I think. Not I know. Only one knows, and that's the Father. And don't say the Bible says that, because the Bible doesn't say it. Okay? So it's not, again, it's not wrong to believe it. Just let's make sure it's belief and not fact. Okay? Guys, this isn't the book. You can take the chart down now. It's enough. <laughs> Guys, this isn't the book of explanations. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? It's, it's not bad to have any of those views. The problem with all four of those camps know the other three camps exist, and they all kind of use the same passages to back up their claim, and they're all still here. If there was one clear winner, everyone would just use that one. And listen, if you force me, I'll pick certain views too, maybe, but salvation isn't on the line, and so there should be no division no denom certainly no denominations separated based on eschatology alone, which is true, by the way, sadly. That just means the enemy has won for long enough that we've divided so greatly over it. 
Every single one of those plans has strengths and weaknesses. And last I checked, God's plan doesn't have any weaknesses. So I'm inclined to think that none of them are correct. Okay? And that's okay. God's plan doesn't have any weaknesses. And that doesn't, that's not just true for eschatology. That's true for your life. You can draw diagrams for God. You can give God a blueprint. You can put four timelines together, and you can put all the Bible verses on it that you want. And your plan for your life is always going to have weaknesses. Nothing is going to be as good as God's plan for your life in his timing. That one's just for free. Not, nothing to do with revelation. But maybe it's a personal revelation for you. Speaking of timing, every generation since Jesus ascended into heaven thought they were the last generation. And that makes a little bit of sense. I mean, when Jesus, shortly before he left, he said, hey, I'm coming quickly. Well, what's quickly mean? Right? A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. Well, maybe just only one knows, right? Now, there are certainly things going on in our time that are unprecedented that make a, that would give us justification for it's never been this bad before we must be near the end right abortion millions of babies millions of image bearers of god killed every year most of them in this country sadly Slavery at an all-time high, sex trafficking at an all-time high. Please go see Sound of Freedom. Please go see Sound of Freedom. Please go see Sound of Freedom. Okay? Go see it. There's a documentary coming out later this year to go with the movie. Go see both of them. And then start to do something about the problem. Or how about the fact that this country is choosing to export gender confusion ideology all over the world. It's really bad out there, but just consider a few things. I don't know if this will level the playing field completely, but just consider them. From our recent history, from 1914 to 1918, World War I, right into the Spanish flu epidemic, killed 41 million people at least around the world. First global war. You don't think those people were like, ooh, this is different. Ah, but it was only four years long. It wasn't seven, so couldn't bend that, right? <laughs> got to find seven. We got to find seven bad years, right? Then the Great Depression, 1929 to 1939, at least 120 million people died. And then right on the heels, the only thing that ended the Great Depression was World War II. That was great. At least 60 million people. Joseph Stalin, the Holocaust, Hitler. It couldn't possibly get any worse, right? Oh, wait. Right after World War II, the rise of communist China. Chairman Mao, don't believe any of the official numbers. They're all too low. He probably killed at least 100 million people while he ruled China. And that wasn't, that he didn't kill 100 million communist demons. He killed 100 million image bearers of God. And he himself, no matter how evil you believe he was, and I believe he was one of the most evil men that has ever lived, he too was an image bearer of God. All of these, you guys, you, you have to be careful when you point at the scoreboard because it tends to point back at least a little bit. All of these generations looked at their historical events. They said, oh, that's it. 
that Revelation 2, I think, is that, that's, the, or no, that's one of the letters, that wouldn't make sense. Uh, Revelation 6, maybe, I think that, that looks like Revelation 14, yeah. Every generation does this. But we're still here. It's almost as if no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. <laughs> right? Therefore, it's of little value, and I would say, I would say, this is my personal position, I think it's dangerous to read yourself and your current events into Revelation because you will lead yourself astray, you will lead others astray, you'll get off the rails so fast and it will lead to all sorts of things that are not of God. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelation of the enemies of the United States trying to dominate the world and then we show up at the end like Captain America because Jesus couldn't do it without us in red, white, and blue. All right, Andrew, you ready for this one? Give me the Google results. All right, so Russia and China are not in the Bible. Now, these are screenshots from my computer. I just Googled Russia in the Bible. Look how many results we got. 93.4 million results. Go to the next one. China in the Bible, 110 million results. Look at that. Is China in the Bible? And then immediately, Ezekiel 38 too. And then... What was China called in the Old Testament? I got the answer for you. Nothing, because it's not there. <laughs> but look at the 110 million results. Somebody's talking about it. And they aren't all bots on Twitter or whatever. These are real people. This is total insanity. Here's the thing, guys. You can take it down. <laughs> <laughs> for, all of, for all of church history, no one gave a rip about China or Russia. And then this thing called the Cold War happened. And American scholars and preachers did not get together in some dimly lit room. They did not say this out loud, but this is functionally what happened. They said, you know, Russia and China are really evil. They must, they're definitely more satanic than we are. Uh, and we, they're definitely going to align with Satan in the final battle, so we need to figure out a way to make the text say that. And let me tell you, that is exactly what they did. Because this isn't just some pie-in-the-sky theory of some dark corner of YouTube, okay? They went into the text and did crazy things with the text to make it say that. And, 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 and my question to you and to the whole church in this country, is are we doing theology or nationalism? At this church, we're going to do theology. I can assure you of that. But anyone who holds the view that China and Russia are in the Bible at all or somehow connected to the end times, that's nationalism and that's demonic. And I'm as patriotic as they come. Trust me on that. How, listen, are you so sure that our country isn't going to side with Satan. We're doing a heck of a good job of it right now. See abortion, see gender confusion ideology being exported all over the place from this country. Okay? Oh, it can't be us. We're the ones that support Israel. We currently support Israel. And I don't care who's in the White House. I don't care who's in Congress. We are always one second, one pen stroke away from removing our support from Israel. Okay? 
don't be ridiculous. Guys, most of the American church believes this stuff. See Google results. Some of the most famous pastors of the biggest churches, and I'm not going to name names because I'm not here to tear down ministries. Again, this is eschatology. This is sort of second layer stuff, but some of the biggest churches, pastors in this country publicly believe this. And the textual basis for this view is literally made up. And I am going to take the time to show you that. (laughs) The biblical writers did not know that Russia and China existed, so they definitely didn't write about them. But the place where the scholars decided to make the text say that is Ezekiel 38 and 39. So let's just do a little section, Ezekiel 38. Okay, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Um, and if you're confused as to how that could possibly refer to Russia and China, good. Uh, a couple of things. So the, the-, the theory goes, keep the-, keep the verse up. The theory goes that Gog is Russia and China is Magog. So as an experiment, let's just f- substitute the names in and read the verse again. Son of man, set your face toward Russia of the land of China. <laughs> Nonsense, right? God, but it doesn't stop there. It gets better, trust me. Uh, so Gog is referred to as the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, which kind of sounds like a title for a person, although you could make the argument that it's referring to the dominant people group in a land called Magog. That's okay. I'm fine with either of those. Uh, But (laughs) the reason Russia gets brought up at all is because they did some creative, creative stupidity, I guess, with the original Hebrew in this passage. So let's go to the next slide. That phrase, chief prince, in English, in the the Hebrew, it's the, the phrase Nesi Rosh. And when we translate that into English, we get chief prince. Now, uh, skeptics love to bring this up. Oh, you know, it's, it's real hard to, to translate Hebrew into English. No, it's not. Don't accept that argument from anybody at any time. No, it's not. We know exactly how to translate Hebrew into English. It's why you all have a Bible on your phones and in your laps. Okay, stop. If any, I don't care how many PhDs, MDs, whatever letters they have after their name. If they tell you we can't transla- translate Hebrew into English reliably, feel free to ignore that person. <laughs> Ridiculous. So what the, uh, what, the, uh, what the scholars and pastors did was they said, we're not going to translate Nesirosh, we're going to transliterate it, which means when you transliterate a word, you take the word in Hebrew and you say, well, that's, that's going to be the word that we use in English. So instead of chief prince, you get prince of Rosh. And then they capitalized it to make it sound like a place name instead of just a random word because that makes sense. And then they said Rosh sounds kind of like Russia. Yeah, it's a stretch. There you go. That's putting it, putting it bluntly. And then they said, go back to the verse, please. Then they said, Meshach, so if Rosh is Russia, then Meshach is Moscow because it sounds like Moscow, kind of, I guess. And Tubal sounds like another Russian city called Tobolsk, and that's the only Russian accent you're going to get out of me today. (laughs) 
And, and so we're off the rails, right? Can, can, we just, can we just agree that we're off the rails? And somehow we spent decades with books and movies, and I'm, we're off the rails, okay? Now, here's the other problem. <laughs> uh, if it was if if it was really if it really said Prince of Rosh, the next thing you would need to do is find a place called Rosh somewhere, right? It's like oh, it's called Russia now, but it used to be called Rosh. Okay, uh, the problem with that is we don't have any historical, written, archaeological evidence that a place called Rosh ever existed anywhere on planet Earth. And then Meshach and Tubal is Moscow and Tablet. No, it's not. Meshach and Tubal are both well-known, archaeologically discovered, documented, written historically places in Turkey, not Russia. Stop. Stop. So I'm, I'm not joking at all. I'm not making a stretch around when I say it. Russia and China, it, it's made up. It's all made up. It's all made up because Revelation, it's not a roster of which nations are angelic and which nations are demonic. It's a statement about the one before whom all nations will bow. So don't be lazy and shove yourself into the text and say, there it is, there I am. You might be, but slow down a little bit. What should we do instead? We need to study. I say this a lot. Look at historical and cultural context, and if you're not sure how to do that, come talk to us. We have tons of resources that can help you with that. It is, you do not have to be a professor. You do not have to have a PhD. I, none of the people that teach on this team have any degrees related to preaching or studying the Bible. Okay? We just are good at looking for stuff, and we can help you. Look at cross-references. John references the Old Testament 579 times. That is a lot. The trick is, none of them are direct quotes. He purposely rearranges the language a little bit so that they're not direct quotes, which means you have to dig a little bit. Here's the best part, though. Any good study Bible is going to have them in the footnotes, like most of them. And we're going to dig into these cross-references in this series. Now, we won't hit all 579, but we're going to hit a lot of them. And those references aren't there just for fun. Where there's a reference, there's a reason. Okay? We're going to study that stuff. Here's another thing you should do. Ask good questions of the text. Don't tell it what to do. What questions should I, should I ask, Phil? I'm glad you asked me. How is the Old Testament being used in this passage? Should I care about it? What's going on in the spiritual realm? We talk about this a lot. What's going on in the physical and the spiritual realm? They're mirror images of each other. Is there already but not yet tension showing up in this passage? Because that should change how I interpret it. Who is the audience for this passage? Or what genre of literature am I reading? So let's talk about genres of literature. Everybody likes to focus on the prophetic apocalyptic stuff, so I will oblige you and talk about that first. Um, apocalyptic literature is a subcategory of prophetic, so we'll just start with prophetic. Um, prophetic literature is all over the New Old Testament especially, which is why John references it, references it so much. It proclaims truth about God. It calls for repentance from sin. And this, is, and this is very key. 
when you're reading prophetic literature and you're looking at those calls for repentance from sin, you are not yet past the point of no return, which means repentance can avoid, help you avoid this calamity that has been prophesied. And if you read the entire Old Testament, that's what the story is. God is like, hey, Israel, I love you. Come back to me. Israel, come back to me. If you don't, I will disinherit you. If you don't, I will punish you. If you don't, right? And we don't like to read that stuff, but it's, it's, it's a loving warning for over a thousand years, God is like, please come back to me, please come back to me, please come back to me, because if you don't, you're going to end up over here. And they didn't end up in exile because God decided to hit the exile button. They ended up in exile because they were walking in that direction the entire time. Okay? When prophetic literature is predictive, it's normally short-term, usually within the prophet's own lifetime. The example I like to use is David, when he starts to prepare to build the temple, prophet shows up and says, hey, God says you're a man of war, you can't build a temple, but your son will get to build the temple. And what happened? Solomon, David's son, built the temple, short term. Okay? And when there is divine intervention, it's usually on, so think like natural means or human means, it's always on a small scale. So parting of the Red Sea, uh, walls of Jericho falling down, that is small scale. It probably seemed big to us, but it's small scale for God. Okay, That is prophetic literature. And then you have apocalyptic literature, which is full unveiling of reality. We talked about this. That's what apocalypse means, or revelation means, the unveiling. The full unveiling of Jesus Christ. We will not see dimly anymore. I, I like to think about in the Old Testament when... Um, Moses was able to see, like, the back of Yahweh, right? It's not going to be like that anymore. We'll see him face to face, all of it. Not with a veil, not with a blindfold. Oh, it's too bright, we'll die. No, full unveiling. With apocalyptic literature, you are past the point of no return, which means no amount of repentance will prevent the forthcoming calamity, which means the faithful remnant are called to endure through whatever comes next, whether the tribulation is seven years or 7,000 years. You are called to endure through it. Luckily, you have the one seated on the throne on your side. Finally, apocalyptic literature describes or predicts final events, final solutions on a global scale. We see that in Revelation very clearly, right? Then we get to the letters. The letters are for us, not to us, which means, let me just press on that for a little bit. They were written to specific churches in specific locations in a specific time in history for a specific purpose for that church. So we have to start with what did the letter mean to those people in that place, in that time, first. And once we understand that, then we can start to ask more personal questions of the text. Again, we're asking questions of the text. We're not telling it what to do. So we say, okay, if these things, these concepts, these ideas are true for those people at that time, what might still be true for me 
today. And if those things, how does, is there any difference, because there might be some differences, right, between how that text, what that text means for those, ver- those people versus what it means for me. And we need, to, we need to wrestle with those things. You don't just get to grab everything and say, oh, that's me. It, it might, you're welcome. Uh, it, you might be able to do that. You might be. It might all, 100% of it might be for you just the way, but we don't just, that's not where we start, Okay. The word letter is actually not really the best translation there anyway. It's better to say message or prophetic oracle. I personally like prophetic oracle better because it more closely aligns with the prophetic oracles you see all across the Old Testament. And again, 579 references to the Old Testament. The vast majority of those references are to the prophetic literature. Okay, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Micah, Zechariah. Even the Psalms are prophetic, right? You'll see declaration, when we, and you'll see this over the next seven weeks. You'll see declarations about who Jesus is. You'll see these really cool descriptions about what he looks like and what Yahweh looks like. And then you'll see, hey, you're doing these good things really well. And then you'll see, hey, but I have this against you. You need to repent of this thing. And if you don't repent of this thing, This is going to happen. Every single one of those letters is a prophetic declaration, a prophetic oracle to those churches. It's not just a letter. But because it says letter in our English Bibles, we think, oh, we think to the the letters of Paul. Well, those letters for Paul are prophetic declarations too. Hey, Corinthians. Hey, Ephesians. This is going well. This is going not so well. If you don't correct this, here's what's going to happen. Don't take the prophetic out of everything. It probably needs, most of it probably needs to stay in. Okay? And finally, you'll see direct connections to Revelation 12. So let's talk about Revelation 12. This is going to be fun. Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head On her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and his throne. Let's stop there. Okay, first of all, there is like a ton of Old Testament references here. Micah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all sorts of stuff happening just this little, and it's a pretty intense passage, right? There's a dragon, there's stars in heaven. Like, I told you we're going in deep today, right? Now, I think most people at a surface level reading, they'll say, okay, there's a woman and she's giving birth and it clearly, I mean, this is clearly talking about Mary and the birth of Jesus. And you would be right to an extent. However, there's other indicators in the passage that we're not necessarily going to get into here, but that the woman isn't just Mary. It's actually the entire nation of Israel. 
Now, Mary is a daughter of Israel, right? So it still, it still works, but you can't just look at the passage and see Mary. You got to see the nation of Israel as the one who carried the promised Messiah, the Savior of the entire world, okay? You also see this dragon imagery. Everybody is probably going to immediately guess Satan, and don't worry, you're right. You're right. There's no curveball. <laughs> It's just, it's just Satan. So that one's good. And then uh, and she, she, bear, she bears the child, the male child, one who is to rule the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God in his throne. So actually that whole verse is talking about the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Right? He wasn't born and then went to the throne. He was born. He lived. He fulfilled his destiny as the Son of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins so that you would have an opportunity to be a part of God's family again. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. The whole life of Jesus, and like right here, is in this passage. And that's a very abstract sort of like, oh, there's stars and signs in heaven. I wonder if, I wonder if there's anything in the physical realm happening, Right? The answer is yes. So, I'm going to say the word zodiac, and you're not going to tense up on me. Okay? Christian astronomers have looked at, studied, the signs of the the constellations of the zodiac for many years, just like the non-Christian ones. Okay? And uh, just really quick, who put the stars into place? Okay, so are the stars demonic? Are the constellations demonic? Did we do all the New Age astrological BS? Okay, so the stars are fine. Okay. We have tracked, humans have tracked the movement of the constellations for thousands of years. So we know exactly where they're going to be at any time. And we can, we, we know their movement so well, we can pick any date in the future, any date in the past, and we know where they were. Not sort of Oh, you weren't there. No, we know where they were. Okay, it's kind of, that'd be like you saying, are you sure? Where's the earth relative to the sun a thousand years ago? Well, same place it is right now. Okay, <laughs> like, okay. So we know where all the constellations were, and I, pro- I, I apologize, I could not find a good picture for this, so you'll have to rely on my amazing storytelling skills to do this. So, Christian astronomers did some calculations. They calculated all the way back to when we believe the strongest date or time when Jesus was probably born, most likely the year 3 BC, most likely in the month of September. Sorry for you super Christ, uh, Christmas fans. He was actually probably born in the month of September. Okay? And then we looked at what were the constellations of the Zodiac doing in September of 3 BC. If you would have looked up at the sky, you would have seen the constellation Virgo, which is the Virgin Mary. And you wouldn't have seen this at nighttime because the sun is down. But if you were to superimpose the path of the sun during the daytime with the constellation Virgo, you would have seen the sun pass right through the womb of Virgo. You would have also seen in the night sky the moon right beneath the feet of Virgo. And off to, and below the woman, the Virgo, and off to the side slightly, you would have seen the constellation Hydra, which is, in Greek mythology, a multi-headed dragon. As above, so below. 
What happens in the physical is reflected in the spiritual. And what was that was happening in the heavens, what John is talking about literally was reflected in the sky with stars that God set into place. That's why you can have passage, weird passages in Paul that talk about no one has an excuse. There's even constellations in the sky that every culture has always tracked that put most of the story for salvation, not all of it, but most of it, in the sky itself. What was happening on earth? Mary, the mother of Jesus, a daughter of Israel, giving birth to the Messiah, who was waiting for him to kill him, Herod, under the influence of that great dragon. But he failed, and they fled to Egypt until he died. He lived his life. He grew up. He conquered sin and death for you, and then he ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And what happened next? Verse 7. Here we go. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. Notice how Michael was good enough to, be, to defeat the dragon. Just doesn't say anything about Jesus or Yahweh being involved in that one. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Hold on a second, Phil. Did you just say that there was a place for Satan in heaven? up until the ascension of Jesus. No, I didn't say it. John said it. <laughs> but don't worry. I'm not going to leave you hanging on that one. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's a very clear reference to Genesis 3, the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve, and through that deception, deceiving the entire world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, you can start to clap if you want, because this is really good. Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The full authority of Christ is operating here and now couple of things from that passage that are super cool. I told you I wouldn't leave you hanging. The accuser language is from many places in the Old Testament, but the most helpful one for me is Job. And there was a Job 1, and there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Wait, I thought like God could never be in the presence of evil, and like Satan was like thrown down as a like it was a long time ago, and and well, Satan still has to obey God, doesn't he? All the time. So if God says, "Hey, Satan, I need to see you," guess who's coming up to heaven? Satan is. So there was a place for Satan in heaven even after, even after he rebelled the first time. And if this is twisting, if this is pressing on your theology or your upbringing a little bit, good. Okay? But I thought God couldn't be in the presence of evil. I'm sure he can figure that out. <laughs> like whatever logical gymnastics you feel like you can't do to rationalize that, I promise you Yahweh's got it. Okay? And I don't have the answer. I don't know how you can... Uh, I, I just know that he's got the answer and he figured that out. So what happened? What happened? 
Satan was angry. Right? He was angry that he had been defeated by a human. He had, dece- he had deceived the humans before, had made them mortal. But the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron became 100% human himself and deceived him into killing the one person that Satan can't afford to kill. So he became angry and he went up to heaven because he still had a place there. And he started a war. And Yahweh and Jesus are seated at the right hand of the throne. They said, hey, Michael, go deal with that. You don't, it, doesn't even say that, it doesn't even say they had the holy angel army there. This was like a division. This was like Michael and plus, a, you know, I don't know how many. Let's call it a thousand. I, I don't know. But some of the angels went with Michael to go deal with that. Okay, guys, Satan is not this close to Yahweh. Right. He's not. Michael was able to deal with him. Yes. He must, he, he has, Satan has always obeyed Yahweh, always. He rebelled, yes, that was disobedience. But every point after that, he has never done anything without, outside the authority of Yahweh, okay? Not one thing. Satan can no longer stand before God and accuse us of anything. He accused Job, right? Oh, if you, and Job, like, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I bet if you take all of his good stuff away, he'll curse you. That was an accusation. But after Jesus ascended to the throne, after his death on the cross, our debt was paid. All the charges against us were canceled. So we should walk in authority here and now. What does that look like? Verse 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. It's not scary, guys. But woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short, not medium, not long, not infinite, short. And when the, de- and the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman, that's Israel, right, who had given birth to the male child. Because again, he's like, I can't believe it. I defeated those stupid humans back in the garden. They ate the fruit. And then this nation of Israel brought about this Messiah who was a baby. And they tricked me into killing him. And now I have lost and I've really lost eternally, forever, lost. And so I'm angry. And I know I can't win this war, but what am I going to do? Verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Listen very carefully, because it's not talking about Jews. It defines offspring right here. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's everyone anywhere in the world who says Jesus is Lord. You are the offspring of the woman and the dragon is furious with you and is coming to make war against you. So if you're not sure up to this point that spiritual warfare is a thing, this is the one verse, if I had to pick one, that I would point you to. Now, there's already but not yet tension happening here, right? Because we know how the final battle ends. 
Satan is conquered, finally. We're in the army, we're watching as Jesus ends it all with a word. That, we'll get to that chapter, that'll be a good one. Okay, we know that he was thrown down from heaven in eternity past. When he rebelled, we also know that he was from time to time up in heaven at God's bidding, but he was not allowed to stay there, a form of conquering, you might say. We also know that as soon as Jesus ascended, he started a war in heaven, and Michael and the angels tossed him back down. So he was conquered multiple times in the spiritual realm. He is being conquered now by us, and he will be conquered finally and forever by the Son of God. Okay? Already, but not yet. So what does that mean for us? Satan is making war on you, your family, your church, this city, this region. The question is, are you going to sit back and let him war against you? Or are you going to join the fight here and now with whatever time you have left? I don't care how much time you think you have wasted. That's in the past. Now. Start now. Start right now. Think about it this way. If someone, a person, I'm going to get Kip riled up real fast. If someone, a person, another person came against you to steal, kill, and destroy, you would eventually respond with violence no matter what your personality type is, no matter what your personal beliefs are on warfare, any of that. If someone says, I'm coming to steal, kill, and destroy you, your family, everyone you love, eventually you're going to respond in violence to that person. So how much more then should we fight back against the enemy? Who is obviously doing that? We need to commit to this as a family. We need to commit to saying this over and over again. I'm not going to hunker down. I'm not going to wait for the final battle and let Jesus take care of it because that's the easy thing to do. That's the easy way out. I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis when he said to fill the earth and subdue it, to make all of planet earth like this place in Eden. And maybe the only thing I can handle is the four walls that I call my house. But with whatever time, whatever breath I have left, I am going to spend the rest of my life on this battlefield, and I'm going to make as much of this place like that place as I can. And if all I can manage is the four walls of my home, that's fine, but I'm going to make my home like as much like heaven as I can. I'm going to make this church building as much like heaven as I can. I'm going to make Peoria as much like heaven as I possibly can because that's the only thing I know how to do. That's the only thing I was called to do all the way back in Genesis. I wasn't born yet, but through Adam and Eve, through the mandate that they were given, all of humanity has always been, you have one job, make this place like that place. That is the Revelation 12 reality that we need to take with us today. And we need to take with us into the next seven weeks as we read those letters because at the end of each letter, you will find this phrase, to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. Seven times the number of perfection, the number of completion. To the one who conquers. 
we are asked to fight back here and now against the forces of darkness. And you're going to say, well, what does that look like? I'm not going to get into specifics today. But the next seven, show up the next seven weeks because each one of those messages is going to be insanely practical. Insanely practical. For now, and during the next seven weeks, just ask the Lord to reveal to you how you're supposed to get up off the sidelines. And even if you're already off the sidelines, there's more work to be done. So ask him to reveal that to you. He will do it. So let's go to Revelation 1. Let's set up the letters with what time we have left. Let's start in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we have seven churches. The letters are written to seven angels of the seven churches. We have lampstand imagery. We have stars. We have the seven spirits before his throne. That's actually kind of the, the start of this seven language in Revelation. Seven churches, seven spirits before his throne. And the church has done a really good job of butchering this one too because what they'll say is the seven spirits before his throne is Isaiah 11, which is actually just a passage about Jesus. It says he will have a spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and it lists these seven things that Jesus will have. And then they'll say, well, it's the number of completion and perfection. So it's talking about the fullness of God's character and he is perfectly understanding. He has all knowledge. He has all wisdom. And I love all that. I agree with all that. I believe it. Um, but it says the seven spirits are before his throne. I thought Yahweh was on the throne. He's not on the throne and before his own throne. He's on the throne. These seven spirits before his throne are angels with a job. I would venture to say these are the angels to the seven churches getting ready to be dispatched to do some work. Let's keep going. Revelation 1 verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and I, on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. That's son of man imagery from Daniel and Ezekiel. There's all kinds of Old Testament stuff going on there that John is repurposing. And then verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. As for the mystery of the seven stars, that's verse 20, drop down to verse 20, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the churches. So I've talked about this before, but star language, anytime you see star language, especially in the Old Testament, it's almost always referring to an angel, not to a burning ball of gas in the sky, because the Hebrews did not know that stars were burning balls of gas in the sky. Think about it. They looked up, they saw these bright lights, they saw that they moved, seemingly of their own volition, and then from time to time, these very brightly clothed white people would show up on earth. I mean, think back to when the shepherds were out there the night Jesus was born and all of a sudden a host of angels show up. Wouldn't it 
again, it's hard because you have too much science in your brain. Like, you look up at those stars and all of a sudden it looks like those things came close enough that I could see them and started singing to me, the first Christmas carol. Right? Right? Don't science yourself out of a revelation here, guys. Okay? They thought they were angels. They literally thought the stars were angels. And it says here, the seven stars that you saw on my right hand are the seven angels. And sometimes, again, the predominant view is that angel, the word angelos in, in Greek is messenger. And so um, the mainstream view is that, well, if it's messenger, then what they really mean is the seven, the, the seven angels are really the pastors of the churches or the elders of the churches that would be reading the, the letter to the churches and... I'm going to say that's wrong uh, because this would be the only place in the Bible where the word angel refers to a human. Every passage in the Old Testament where you see angel talks about an angel. Everywhere else in Revelation, where they talk about angels, they'll say it's an angel. But then in the letters, it's like, well, it's not an angel, it's a person. So let's, again, let's not, let's not science our way out of it. Let's not church history our way out of it. Okay. Paul says we're going to judge angels. Okay, why would he try, why would, he, why would John, and John had read Paul, why would John be like, oh, it's really a, we're making angels and humans kind of the same. No, no, no. We are to judge angels. Angel means angel, means angel, means angel, means angel. But this cool language is, where is it coming from? It's coming from a lot of places, but let's go to Zechariah 4. I'm almost done, I promise. Listen to this in light of John. This is like a mirror image of what John saw in Revelation. And the angel who talked with me, again, this is Zechariah, this is Old Testament, this is hundreds of years before John. And the angel who talked with me came to me and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And then there's a bunch of back and forth and then skip down to verse 10. The angel tells Zechariah what that imagery means. These are the seven eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Well, that's... Okay, well, that just means... That's just like... It's just talking about like the infinite capacity for God to know, like God's omniscience, he's everywhere, he sees everything, there's no, nothing spiritual realm going on there at all. Well, there's actually one other place where that language comes up, and it's from much earlier in the Bible, Second Chronicles 16.9. I love, I love this. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, listen very carefully, to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him so and this one is for free too if you ever wanted if you're ever looking for a verse to back up the idea that guardian angels exist that's the one okay that's the one remember the to and fro language God said to Satan in Job 1 where have you been Satan said I've been I've been down on earth going to and fro, walking up and down on it. The seven spirits 
Satan at one time even did this. He was one of the eyes of the Lord, you might say. We don't know how many angels had this job. Probably many of them did. But their job was to go about the earth, keep track of humanity, report back to Yahweh what they saw, what they found, and in some cases, strengthen those whose heart is blameless towards him. Don't you think that's what Gabriel did at one point with Mary? Don't you think that's what Gabriel did with Joseph? Joseph was struggling. What should I do? Should I divorce her? What should we do? And Joseph and Gabriel shows up. Hey, 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 listen. He gave strength, didn't he? Even Satan did this job for Yahweh from time to time. And he even snuck a little digging at him too, right? Hey, where have you been? As if he didn't know. And knowing that Satan can only be in one place at one time and is not all-knowing, said, hey, I don't, earth's kind of a big place. Have you run into Job yet? Right? Stay in your place. I want you to stand on your feet and close your eyes. I want you to picture yourself in heaven. Yes, there's a bunch of humans there, but there's a bunch of angels there too. What's going on? What's happening? I would venture to say that most of us have this very boring picture of a endless sea of people dressed in white singing the same three words over and over again. And there's certainly going to be a lot of singing there. I love singing. I sure certainly hope that we do some of that. But um, that's not even remotely the only thing that will happen. Because when we read the texts like we read today, we'll find out that the angels in God's family had jobs. Michael was a warrior. Many of the other angels were up there fighting a war in heaven. Gabriel was a messenger angel. He was also somewhat of a guardian angel, strengthening the hearts of people that were blameless towards Yahweh. We have some of the eyes of the Lord going up and down on the earth, watching over humanity and reporting back to Yahweh what they had seen. Does God need any of those angels to do any of that? No. Does he need me to preach to you today? Does he need me to lead worship to you? Does he need any of the leaders of this church to do any of this stuff for you? Does he need you to tithe? Does he need you to clean? Does he need you to pray for healing over someone? No. He doesn't need any of that. But he asks you to do it anyway. He asks those angels to do their jobs anyway. Not because he needs it, 
but because he loves when his family goes about the family business. And this became so real for me on Thursday night because I was struggling with my message a little bit and I sat down out there on the green couch and my four-year-old Lex sat down next to me and he saw my document open and words were flying all over the place and he goes, Daddy, too much words. (laughs) Yeah, too much words. That's right. So I deleted a bunch. Most mornings, my four-year-old Lex and my seven-year-old Kale, they will beg me to help make breakfast. (laughs) Daddy, can I crack the eggs? Daddy, can I put oil in the pan? Daddy, can I stir this? Daddy, can I help you mow the yard? Daddy, can I carry this? And I feel very convicted right now because a lot of times I get frustrated with that because it's just easier if I do it myself. It's less messy if I do it myself. It's faster if I do it myself. Plus, it's work. Why in the world would a kid who can play forever want to make breakfast with me. Could it be that my sons just want to be near their daddy? Should I not then be overjoyed that my sons want to be with me, want to learn things from daddy. Even though they have no idea what the value of those things are, they're too young to know, they're too innocent to know that it's important to be able to cook for yourself or take care of your yard or clean up. They don't know the value of those things. They just see daddy doing them. Is it possible that this is the exact same posture that the Father seated on the throne? As big, as infinite, and as far away as he seems, is it possible that this is the exact posture that he has towards you? Way better than I could possibly ever pull it off as a father? Is it possible that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that he doesn't need you to exist? He does not get more glory because you are alive. He does not need more glory. He doesn't need help to do anything. But he decided a long time ago that I am going to create a family full of angels and full of humans. And I am going to give them the opportunity to join in the family business and go about working the family business, working the land. I created this beautiful place for them. And then I said, okay, I don't need your help, but hey, go make this place just the way that I intended to do it. You do it. You take care of it. Your father is reaching out to you today. If you don't know him, it's very simple. You turn in your heart right now and you say, you say, God, I 
need you. There is sin in my heart that I cannot deal with myself. I have no power over it. But your son, Jesus, died on the cross for the sin. And right now I am putting my faith in that person, in the blood that wash, that covers my sins, that washes it away, that pays that debt for all of eternity so that I can be a member of your family again, that I can be called your son and your daughter. Maybe you've been a Christ follower for a very long time. but God feels very far away. Maybe you feel like you're on the sidelines and you're not even sure how to get up, get up off the sidelines. And I'm telling you, I can sit here and talk to you like a football coach and tell you to, and give you this big giant rah-rah sort of speech. Or I could point your eyes to the father seated on the throne who is desperate for his son or daughter to join, actually start acting like a member of his family. When you're in a family, you work together as a family. You do the work of the Father. So whatever, however you're supposed to respond in this moment, I'm not sure the Spirit is revealing that to you. But as we sing this last song, you can come forward and receive prayer. You can grab the person next to you and have them pray over you whatever it looks like. Keep your eyes fixed on the Father and meditate on this idea that he is your daddy and he is desperate for you to join in the family business and start to work this land and bring it to a place that it's just as much like heaven as possible.